Listener Production. Hi, I'm Amy Dale and I'm not a lawyer. But since working at the Law Society, I've met and worked with plenty of them. And I've also met countless people who need help understanding the law and, more importantly, knowing how to find the right lawyer. That's why we've created this podcast, to help make the law accessible for you, for me, for everyone. No jargon, no law speak, I promise. Just me diving into the most common legal problems to help you make the best decisions possible. Welcome to Lawfully Explained. When it comes to the ways of how the law can support the transgender community, there can be a lot of noise, a lot of outrage, and a lot of ugly politics. But there is one thing that is really important to remember, and that is that there is help available, there are resources available, and there are lawyers working every day to support members of the transgender community. And to that end, I'm really happy to be joined by Katie Green, who is a solicitor at the Inner City Legal Centre. Katie and her team work every day with members of the transgender community to help them stop falling through the cracks that can exist in the legal system. And we are also very happy today to be joined by Kavitha Simasami, who is a lawyer and also a member of the transgender community who is going to share her lived experience with us today. So welcome to both of you. Katie, I want to begin by talking about the history of laws that have affected transgender people. What is the first example of a law that had an impact on the transgender community? In recent history, since the sort of gradual recognition of trans people as existing, we have a record from 1987 of a trans woman, Estelle, um, who was a model and dancer. And we think she was the first legally recognised post-operative trans person who was recognised with births, deaths and marriages in New South Wales uh, and given a certificate that affirmed her gender identity. What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in recent mm. history? The good news, I think, about birth certificates just about everywhere else in Australia, um, but for New South Wales and but for Western Australia, is that people um, of trans experience everywhere else are able to sort of self-identify their gender on their birth certificate documents. So that means you can go into the you know birth, deaths and marriages or equivalent office and say, I am a woman, I am proud, I am a man, I am proud, I am neither a woman or man. And they can put their name and their chosen, affirmed gender marker on their documents. You can't do that in New South Wales at the moment. And this is changing. There's actually a big review of New South Wales anti-discrimination laws happening right now. And uh, what the ICLC and a lot of other activists and, and legal thinkers in this space will be saying is that this law has to go in New South Wales, this concept of recognised transgender person, which I don't like speaking about because it's really quite crass and and violent and revolting, but it's basically about having uh, two different medical professionals look at what's inside somebody's knickers and um, signing a form to confirm that their genitals line up with this uh, adopted gender identity and, and what modern social theory tells us and also what just the lived experience of lots of trans people tells us that what's inside someone's underpants is such a small part and such a small and irrelevant part of what makes up somebody's gender. So it's quite sort of boring and dry and convoluted the way that it's written in the legislation, but that's currently the legal position in New South Wales. Katie, before the show, we chatted a little bit about the different types of transition, which was social, legal and medical. Mm. Are you able to briefly outline what those three mean and how they fit together? 
Okay. And I've got to acknowledge that I'm a person with cisgendered privilege. Um, so we are very lucky to have someone here that can and speak to it from lived experience. So I'll start with legal transition, which really I think is the least uh, important in, in the hierarchy. But legal transition is getting your documents up to date, not being discriminated against in the workplace. In some situations, it involves family court orders that involve children. Medical transition is whatever medical steps uh, a person may take or may not take to affirm their gender. So that can be everything from puberty blockers to hormones to surgical interventions. And surgical interventions can be a range of different procedures. A lot of trans people start with their face because, of course, that's what people in the world can see rather than what's in someone's knickers, as I was speaking about before. And then, of course, there is social transition, which I think is the the biggest and most important and least tangible. So that's coming out to your family and to your friends, coming out at work, coming out at school. Um, lots of trans people experiment with coming out online in safe spaces with groups of peers that they found, um, maybe at school, but not at home, maybe at home, but not at school. Kavitha, I want to, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show to share not only your professional expertise, but also your lived experience. So thank you so much for joining us. I want to ask you about your journey over the past six months. Are you able to share the journey that you've been on since the start of this year? I think my journey would probably, in a transgender sense, probably start three to four years ago. So probably started sort of playing around with makeup. And that's not saying everyone plays around makeup is trans. But for me, that was my way of, of exploring my gender. Um, and then I started performing as a drag queen. Um, and then I realized that I was really sad when I wasn't in drag. So I thought this has always been what I've known about myself that I've kind of denied. And that that aspect of my story is, I think, uh, common with a lot of trans people. I think a lot of trans people know from a quite young age, not all the time, and you don't have to always know, but um, a lot of people I talk to do. And I think because of, you know, our family and cultural upbringings, we tend to sort of suppress that. I was sort of changing my presentation um, on a day-to-day basis. My sort of fashion and presentation was sort of, quote-unquote androgynous. Um, And I started HRT, hormone replacement therapy, and came out as trans at that point to everyone. And then I was sort of on the fence about gender affirmation surgery because really, as Katie pointed out, gender affirmation surgery is by no means like necessary. Like I I did have my gender affirmation um, bottom surgery recently. A few people found out about it at work and some everyone has different levels of awareness of the transgender experience and some people who maybe weren't as aware of it were like oh my god wow it must be so like life-changing and amazing and I look exactly the same you know what's in my pants is not known to anyone right so it comes to show how much really the law should not um, focus on genital surgery and and gonads and that sort of a thing. Kavitha, are you able to talk me through some of the challenges that you faced around formalising or legalising your gender affirmation? Like in the ACT, so I live in Canberra and in the ACT, I changed my gender sort of legally. So I I got a recognised detail certificate at the very start of my transition. um, And that doesn't solve all the like legal transition issues. Like then you've got to call Medicare, you've got to call ATO and you've got to call your superannuation, you've got to call your bank, you've got to call your, there's so many, like there's so many if you add up everyone, you know, and each one is a 
call where you call up and say, hi, I'm blah. And at this point I had like trained my voice and they're just like, okay, so they're talking to me and I'm like, actually I'm transgender. And, you know, and so it's just an awkward conversation. How much in going through this process did being a lawyer assist in terms of knowing your knowing your rights and knowing how to navigate systems? And what did that make you feel about people who are going through the same experience but don't have that legal training that you do and sort of know roughly how these sorts of systems operate? There's a few barriers here. The first one is not understanding the forms and the requirements. Um, and for so many people I've sent across like helpful links and forms and things like that, that, but that's only one side of it. I think what we also know is that trans people have disproportionately suffer from a lot of anxiety and depression, and there's a lot of negative mental health outcomes. And I know so many trans girls who are too scared to put makeup on their face because they're just very anxious. Like I've met so many trans people who don't like leave the house. They're too scared to like go and go to Access Canberra and like try and update their documents like that that is a whole thing that you know I'm fortunate enough in that I have the privilege of not having mental health that's as as severe as as some of my friends and people I know but that's another whole aspect to it. Katie you work in this area day in and day out and listening to Kavitha's experience with all the documents and other things that need to be done to formalize a gender affirmation this must be something that you see all the time. The, the two main things we talk about in our legal clinic is discrimination at school, at work or at home, wherever, and documents. And we've started at the ICLC, particularly when clients aren't wealthy and guess what, most trans people aren't because of all of the other intersecting problems that they have. So we've really started to offer clients when they come through wanting advice about updating their birth certificate and other documents, we'll fill out the form for you and we'll pay for it. Because that's the other thing. In New South Wales, it costs 200 bucks. Every single time they have to update a document or, or go in, you know, medical care, it's really financially expensive to be trans. And, you know, again, cis people, we just don't have that, you know. It, it, we just don't have those expenses. So we've started just with this simple little thing that's one tiny aspect of a trans person's life to say, we'll fill out the form and we'll pay for it for you. And, and we really hope to do more of it and get the word out that we are supporting people with that kind of financial and, I guess, administrative aspect of legal transition. But there's a lot of other barriers, even when we've tried to take those ones away. What sort of costs could someone be looking at when you say that that form alone is 200 so dollars? What costs could people be looking at? Yeah, well, I guess if you want to update your driver's license and your passport, and, and that's even just the um, the money costs, but what cost on someone's time spending hours on the phone to the bank or Centrelink or your super fund or, you know, gosh, I mean, if you've got to get criminal record checks or working with children checks, which you so often do for employment, that's a whole other podcast, that one, the, the money costs, but also the time cost that trans people need to invest. And you can't just step away from work to do that sort of stuff, which is why I think we're starting to see a lot of progressive workplaces offering this gender affirmation leave. And that theoretically would allow someone the time that it takes to do all of that horrible, boring, bureaucratic government, even when it's not about changes. We all hate filling out that kind of paperwork. and We all dread navigating these systems. It's the worst. Is there an option for people who don't identify as either male or female to not select a gender on legal documents? 
Yeah, so certificates of marriage don't have a gender on them and that's kind of a real, that's sort of some of the amendments around the Marriage Act that are really cool because we have all gender marriage now and so genders don't matter anymore on marriage certificates. Passports, you can have M, F or I think an X marker and there's a really exciting High Court case, the case of Norrie um, and Norrie's a, a Gadigal-based activist and I say activist in many ways. Um, they uh, live in public housing and, and write this publication called the South Sydney Herald and they're long. Oh, I've seen that, yeah. Norrie's a very, very, um, one, and, and in fact their bike is on display at the Powerhouse Museum actually because you see Norrie riding around the streets with, with the his, bubbles with and the yes. bubble bike and the flowers. So Norrie is a long-term, you know, has spoken about their history they transitioned to be a woman in the 80s and then at some point they came out as non-binary and was a real pioneer in that space and Norrie went and won the High Court case that said that they had the right to identify and the High Court judgment's beautiful. It talks about all of these gender neutral and diverse pronouns in international language, Z or Z or he or, you know, it's, it's very cool. So this is why the federal jurisdiction is um, streets ahead of where we are in New South Wales and you know, just administratively to make it easier. Let's bring it all into line. Anything to ease any form of administrative burden, just absolute tick. Surely the government wants it to be easier. (laughs) Streamline away. In your work, Katie, you would work with people of all different ages and backgrounds. And one of the areas that can be really challenging and contentious in this discussion is age. What age does a non-binary person need to be to make their own decision to affirm their gender? Oh, such a good question. And and when we talk about affirming gender, what are we talking about? Are we talking about putting on makeup, experimenting with a different name, putting on different pants or trying on skirts? So, you know, we know that children and young people start doing that at a really young age. But yeah, where it starts to get difficult in the legal sense... The legal is, affirmation space. ...is um is about access to medical care. So so it's young people um, under 18-year-olds. And, and I try to sort of demystify it that it's not really just a trans issue in the sort of arena of medical treatment and family law, whenever a young person requires a form of medical treatment that is perceived as serious and potentially carries risks, so I'm talking about experimental cancer treatments, I'm talking about terminations of pregnancy, any kind of serious medical decision requires sort of two things. It requires what's called Gillick competency, which is just a concept that talks about the child or the young person understands what the treatment is why the treatment's available and any potential risks or outcomes. And who makes that determination? Is that a doctor Mm. who makes that determination or a lawyer? So if it's for blockade, so what's called stage one therapy hormones, as a general rule, that is a decision that can be made between um, treatment providers and families. The court does not need to get involved. Stage two, again, which is when we start talking about HRT, again, if the child is assessed by their medical team, and supported by both of their parents, that decision generally doesn't need to go to the courts, particularly if we're talking about a child that's 16 and over. There's some debate, um, more amongst the medical fraternity, that commencing HRT for under 16-year-olds might need to be reviewed by a tribunal. Um, but a lot of that is kind of currently being tested. And again, it's, it mostly sits with the medical professions. I understand you've been involved in a recent high-profile case about this this determination and when people can begin treatment. Are you able to 
speak about that? Yes. So the ICLC is very proud to have been involved in the leading case, which is re-imaging, which is in the family court. And the, the thrust of the decision is that if a child or young person is deemed Gillick competent, so they understand what the proposed treatment is and what it will do and its potential risks, the medical team support it and mum and dad or mum and mum or dad and dad or the sole parent, if there's sole parents, decide that it's okay for the kid, the court need not be involved. If the two parents disagree, that's when it has to go to court. How would a young person with disagreeing parents begin legal proceedings to affirm their identity? Oh, you know, my thoughts and, and solidarity with, with that young person. Um, I think they'd be wanting to speak to the parent that supports them about getting some family law advice stat um, and to try and find a family lawyer that is supportive um, also of these issues and understands issues, the families of children who are gender diverse experience um, because, you you know, it's it's really the family court ultimately is where these um, where these situations end up. But having said that, there are so many support services for LGBTQ young people and, and for their families. We'll link to some of those as yeah, well. brilliant, brilliant. But yeah, accessing services and trying to find education for that parent that needs to be brought along on that journey. I think as well, like for anyone listening to this podcast and maybe thinking, oh, that's great. There's like an avenue through the family court to apply when there's a disagreement between the parent and the child. Like, let's be honest, practically the balance of power lies with the parent. You know, I can't imagine like, you know, say for example, me, like I grew up in a really conservative, like Sri Lankan, Tamil, like Hindu family. There's no way in hell that I could have told my mom to go get legal advice about something, you know, she's lovely, but, you know, I come from this sort of, community where if you're left-handed, you know, your your left hand is tied to the cupboard and you're made to eat with your right hand. Like that's the, the sort of, you know, and a lot of sort of conservative Christian um, friends from those sort of backgrounds I know have come from really, really restrictive backgrounds too. Like really the percentage of people who, who will have to navigate this process, it's not going to be easy for the child, you know. Um, so, yeah. Kavitha, I want to ask about some of the most common legal rights issues that transgender and non-binary people face today. Firstly, is it illegal to misgender someone? I don't think it's illegal to misgender someone. I think misgendering in some contexts, like let's say maybe there's an intention and repeated misgendering can maybe be construed as, as discrimination in some contexts. Obviously, it's discrimination is, is in a legal sense is different to what an individual would, would perceive in a general sense. So yeah, I think with pronouns, just if you're, I think there's nothing to be scared of. I think people are quite often too scared to ask people, you know, talk to trans people, ask about anything. It's like, if you're not sure, just ask um, and don't assume is probably the best policy to have. Katie, can you think of examples of particular and unique workplace discrimination that trans people continue to face? Yeah, I think the pronouns example is a really good one. Um, more and more you're finding in employment law, there's lots of different frameworks in, in workplaces. You know, workplaces have a new responsibility to make sure to, to proactively protect people or workers against sexual harassment and also against psychological injury. There's also anti-bullying provisions in the Fair Work Act. So people who are transgender diverse, um, you know, same-sex relationships, all of our clients really, depending on what's happening at work, 
might have access to some of these mixed bag protections and that might be under the Sex Discrimination Act. It might be under the Anti-Discrimination Act in New South Wales. It might be under the Fair Work Act, which is another federal piece of discrimination. And this is one of the things we really struggle with at the ICLC. It's like, where should we go? Where are we going to get the best result? Yeah, where do you begin? Where where do you start? Um, But I would say an example like in a workplace where someone has come out you know, they've updated their documents, they've had their gender affirmation leave and they come back to, you know, the school, the bank, the office where they work and there's a class of people, whether it's managers, colleagues, the whole workplace or one person, if they're repeatedly willfully misgendering someone and not respecting that person's gender, I think you'd be able to run a case in a situation like that. But it would have to tip over from an honest mistake. And and I think we know that a lot of lazy people make probably too many honest mistakes and we all need to do better and we all need to do the work. But if it was yet repeated and deliberate and management did nothing to stop it, I think you'd have a case. And um, can I just say we at the ICLC would be very interested to hear from people that have these kinds of experiences. These are exactly the sorts of matters that we want to run. I want to ask about two other issues that regrettably get deeply ugly and political and awful and they are gendered spaces when it comes to bathrooms and participation in sport. Thinking about the most common legal issues that transgender and non-binary people face, what do you see happening to people in terms of of bathrooms and and use and access to uh, the bathroom that matches their affirmed gender? God, it's architecture. Fix it. Yeah, I think it's um, it's a really loaded topic. I've been very lucky that I've never had any um, incidents in the bathroom, but I have so many friends who have experienced violence. And every time I go into a bathroom, I still have sort of like a little bit, a little like bit of like, oh my God, like I need to hold my breath. And, you know, like maybe a handful of times, like I've followed a lady just like looking at me and I've been like, oh my God. And she'd be like, oh darling, your hair's so gorgeous. And I'd be like, oh my God, breathe. <laughs> Classic female bathroom conversation. It's just, it's really scary because you hear about trans people like statistically, like not going to the toilet in public because of the fear of being harassed or, um, being exposed to violence, which honestly, it's just ridiculous. And it's so complicated because I think for for trans women going into um, like female bathrooms, you know, there's a bit of harassment side of things, but often with trans mass people going to male bathrooms, that's a that's sort of a very, that can be a really unsafe space for them. So it's a really, really complicated area. So like really what is the answer, you know? Like I think quite often there's this sort of narrative of, I think with the sports topic as well, but also with the bathroom topic, there is sort of a focus and generally with the media, there's a focus on trans women. And I, I think statistically there's been much more attacks on trans women than there have been. I don't think there's been any attacks on cisgender women in, in women's bathroom by trans women, you know. Um, and actually, interestingly, I read an article the other day where a cisgender woman was screamed at by someone for being a trans woman, but she wasn't a trans woman. She just had short hair, um, but she was a cisgender woman, so she wasn't trans. But she got screamed at by an, by an older woman in, in a woman's bathroom for being trans. And then she had to go and get security. And then she went 
public about that. So, you know, this is an issue that affects everyone, you know, like I often wonder with the hypercriticalness of how trans people look and everything, how would you feel if you're a more, more masculine looking woman or, or more feminine looking man? Like, you know, it's, it's an issue that affects everyone. Like, I think we just need to get over it. Here's something that I don't understand about public bathrooms, right? Like women's toilets always have longer queues. Yes. My workplace is very feminized. So I think at the moment we've got sort of seven women or people who present as women and maybe one cis guy. And I'm like, oh, the bathroom's full. I'm like, no, it's not. Go to the men's. <laughs> people always look at me like I've got four heads or I'm doing something really weird. And I'm like, what do you think's going to happen in yeah. there? I'm like, I just don't want to wait. Yeah. It's so strange. If you have ever spent 25 minutes waiting for a bathroom <laughs> when a cis dude is just in and out. Why? There's others like, what's going to happen if you go in yeah. there? I mean, for goodness sake. Katie, then returning to the, the issue of transgender participation mm, in sport. Is this a legal issue? Is it a regulation mm. issue? Is it a political issue? Oh, it's all of those things, Amy. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's one of the hardest questions. It, it really is. And I have to say some of the best contemporary work around this um, has been the work of Equality Australia and Alex Greenwich's proposals in his Equality Bill. And they talk about you know, looking at the kind of strength and physical requirements of the sport and then making a decision that's proportionate to that. So the way the law works in New South Wales at the moment, the discrimination law, it's maybe as good as it's going to get, but the the Anti-Discrimination Act kind of outsources a lot of those decisions to the codes. It, it sort of says codes can include or exclude trans people based on, you know, the club or the sport. And in, on the positive side, what we are seeing is the, a lot of codes are being really trans-inclusive and don't actually care. So we think that that's really great. Again, another case study that I hope to be able to speak about um, more in more detail publicly soon, but we're seeing a lot of online vilification of trans women playing sport in women's sport teams. And there's certain, um, I'm doing air quotes, activist groups, sort of gender-based activist groups that are targeting those clubs and those women and sort of using this narrative, you know, you're harming our girls in sport. You've, you've already seen it on the news and it's it's real activists. They're activists working on the opposite side um, to us, kind of saying that this is harmful to women and girls in sport and there's going to be injuries and it's not fair and all of this stuff. But then you talk to, we talk to our clients and we talk to their clubs and everyone's perfectly happy, you know, and the people and the other teams. And we're talking about like low level community sport. No one's going to the Olympics. And, and I do think at the Olympic level that that's where it does get really hard and, you know, science needs to get involved to a certain extent. And But when we're looking at community social... When we're looking at sport. community social activities, the clubs tend to be quite happy. Again, the issue because of our sort of irregular patchworky kind of the legal avenues that are available to these people. Um, you can make claims under anti-discrimination. You can make claims under defamation law because a lot of this stuff happens online. And sadly, we don't see the police intervening to help people very much in this space. Um, so we're supporting transgender. I'm not going to call them athletes because they tend to not be. They tend to be trans people. Anyone who's community. played social sport yeah, would say, people mm, athletes are stretch. Sport. Yeah. Um, and we're supporting them to seek, you know, personal um, apprehended violence orders for their protection to stop people from harassing them online, stop people from showing up at the sport and stop people from contacting other players in their team and contacting other teams saying, you know, do you know, like, and outing people. It's really, 
nasty and silly and political. Um, so I'm really hopeful that Alex's amendments will get through. But but like I see, what I'm actually seeing from sports codes, and you see on a lot, you know, cricket, various different sports, they've, they've got statements about their position, about gender diverse people playing sport. And a lot of the, co- the codes are actually really leading the way. It's terrific. Kavitha, I want to ask you, for somebody who is listening to this episode, who is in a position where you were five years ago, if there's one thing that you would want them to know, what would it be? You have one life and live your best life. It's going to be hard, but it's going to be worth it. And um, you'll find so many friends and a new community through this and you'll become a stronger person. And Katie, if there's one thing that someone listening to this that you want them to walk away from in terms of how they can be a better ally, be a better support to someone who they know who is transgender or beginning the process of transitioning, what would it be? Wear it. Wear your colours. So learn about the trans flag. There's lots of really great, um, you know, minus 18, sell heaps of merch online and that's to raise funds for GLBTQ young people. Buy the shirts, you know. I'm not wearing it today, but in my office, we've all got um, trans flag shirts. We've got pins that say we're allies. I've got a pin that I wear, particularly when I'm speaking with government, um, and it's by this wonderful little shop, Sydney-based shop um, called Sock Draw Heroes, and they sell merch and also gender affirming gear, um, things like chest binders, um, underpants for people that are transitioning. And they've got this really cool pin um, that says no turfs on our turf. Um, And a turf, a T-E-R-F, is a trans exclusionary radical feminist. So that's that kind of breed of feminists that don't believe that trans women ought to be included. So I like to wear that badge when I'm going to speak with lots of other cis people or government people or decision makers, because it's a real conversation starter. And um, I'm proud as an ally that I guess um, a lot of people feel a bit more confident to ask me the stupid questions or the questions where they feel like they might put their foot in it. And I don't know everything, you know, the knowledge in this area is always changing, but I'm really happy for my trans friends and family and client that I can kind of take some of that pressure off them because we should all be doing, um, all of us cisgender people really ought to be doing more to understand the issues, particularly when it comes to, you know, saving the lives of children because more and more of them, and this is a good thing, more are feeling safe enough to kind of come out and express their gender identity sooner, but we have to keep them safe. Thank you so very much for coming in and sharing your lived experience, your professional expertise. That was just, yeah, I feel very privileged. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And um, I am really glad to be here and share my experience as well. Lawfully Explained is a listener production brought to you in partnership with the Law Society of New South Wales. Hosted by me, Amy Dale. The Law Society's producer is Francisco Silva. Our audio is by Kelly Fulston. The executive producer is Todd Stevens, And the producer is Thomas Thexton. Listener.